Hello, everybody. Welcome to our Week in Review. I am Stephen Cox, along with co-host, chair of the King County Democrat, Shasti Conrad. Hello, Shasti. Hi, Stephen. And managing partner of Left Wing Digital, Will Casey. What's up, my man? Always good to be here and talk with two of you. So, Shasti, um, I was following you live tweeting on the Grammys last weekend, which was awesome. Uh, it was a very big night for women, I thought. Yeah, it was so exciting to see so many women winning like the big awards. I think they won all of the like record of the year, song of the year. Um, Beyonce made history, uh, which was so cool. Um, yeah, it was it was great. I love music. I know you're a big music fan too, Stefan. Indeed. Um, and uh, you know, I've 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 worked in putting on concerts and working with musicians and everything. And so, um, the Grammys. Normally, we sort of boycott the Grammys, but I've been so hungry for music that it was just lovely to see such awesome performances. I agree, and it was kind of cool the way that it was. It was sort of intimate. You know, it was definitely done better than Golden Globes. I'll, I'll tell you that. <laughs> I should call yes. out the fact that Sophia Dannenberg was in a Google commercial. Uh, she is kind of a local celeb. She was appointed by Governor Inslee for the State Parks and Rec Committee. Uh, she is on the county's redistricting commission, and she's the black, uh, the first black person to climb Mount Everest. So that was super duper cool. Yeah, and that, right? Yeah, yeah. We, we know her for, for politics. She also was she also climbed Mount Everest. It was the first uh, first black person to do that. I um, um I, I went to the gym yesterday. Does that count? Do I, do I get any, any points <laughs> I, know, right? I know. It's like, you know, it's being being next to Sophia, you're like, oh wow, I really should do some more with my life. Like what what am I doing here? I know. <laughs> I know. Um, but it was cool. It was really because I, none of us knew she didn't tell us. Um, I'm not sure she even knew and we were I was just watching the Grammys and I was like, wait, I know her. That's my friend. I yeah. love that. I love that. That was the same experience that I had when we were watching Roll Call during the uh, the Democratic National Convention and Mule and Tai popped up and I'm like, whoa. Woo! Amazing. I know her. Uh, yeah. I would also just say apart from like Brittany Howard who I was really excited about and, and you know, Fiona Apple who I really did think had the greatest uh, album of the year. It was kind of the soundtrack to everybody's pandemic uh, Fetch the Bolt Cutters. Rachel Maddow won a Grammy so she's on her way to being and EGOT. So uh, congratulations to you, Rachel. So uh, let's just get to the news. And I will mention in the second half of the show, Shasti is going to be speaking about anti-Asian hate in the wake of shootings in Atlanta with Senator Joe Wynn and candidate for the Port of Seattle position for Toshiko Hasegawa, who currently serves as executive director of Washington State's Commission on Asian Pacific American Affairs. But first, we are now a week out from the passage of the American Relief Package, which means we have some perspective on a few things, specifically how this is landing now with the American public and about how Biden's team is planning on selling it. Uh, Will, a lot of people are starting to receive their checks now, so that means they're directly feeling the benefits of this legislation. I wonder how you think that changes the way that we think and talk about the ARP. Well, I think it's it's critical, right? I think it's the biggest difference between uh, this administration and sort of how they've learned, learned their lessons from the Obama era, right? I mean, we saw with the ACA that that was designed almost intentionally. I mean, Chastity might be able to confirm this, but probably actually intentionally to be as invisible as possible, right? It's sort of a complicated uh, equation that you enter your income and all these other factors into a website and you get a discount from basically like a private insurance company as opposed to this is the government doing what it needs needs to do, which is stepping in during a crisis and making sure that people have their basic needs met, right? And that is a direct 
impact that you're not going to have to rely on, although they're doing a great job with this, you're not going to have to rely on media coverage to explain to people how, you know, the Democratic Party is helping folks, they're going to get, you know, their bank balance is going to reflect that, right? And so I think that that is, it shows that we've learned our lessons, um, at least in this instance, um, from the obstruction of the Obama era, and that we need to make sure that people understand on a visceral level, on a personal level, um, that government can be a force for good in our lives. Yeah, we've talked a lot about the need for Democrats to really take more credit for their victories. And, you know, you talk about when people were receiving checks in their 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 mailbox or their bank account, it makes it a hell of a lot easier. But Shasti, we know that Biden, uh, along with the first lady, Vice President Harris, uh, the first gentleman, all heading out across the country to take kind of a victory lap to basically let people know about this thing. What do you make of this strategy? Because I know that you were around in the White House during similar times when people were trying to do uh, media blitz. What do you make of this one? Yeah, I mean, you know, look, it's it's a huge piece of legislation. And like Will just said, you know, it's like sometimes when you're trying to you, you get lost in the weeds of all the like sausage making of how it happens. And now the job is to go and like sell it. It's like we did it and be really clear and really proud of what we did. And, you know, I think a number of folks probably know, you know, I got my career started doing advance for Vice President Biden. Um, and back in 2009. And that's what he did so well was he would take the message around this country. And it was about, you know, sort of selling it to the American people, but also to be able to show the rest of the country that people were excited, that people are happy to be receiving things like a stimulus check. That is meaningful to them. Um, And I think that it's really powerful. I also want to note that I think they've done a really good job of being adaptive because they had planned on going to um, Georgia anyway because of the, you know, the getting the 50th senator that way. Um, And they changed that yesterday into a a sort of memorial for the um, people who had been killed in the Atlanta shootings the day before. And I just thought that it was really effective where it was messaging, but also being able to understand human, human connectivity and like needing to be there for a community in trauma, which is something that President Obama and vice and and at the time Vice President Biden were so effective at. And I've missed it during those Trump years to have a leader who is able to feel people's pain and be there for them. And I think that's exactly what the Biden administration is doing right now. And it's excellent to see. It has been like a a drink of ice water in in the middle of a desert. I mean, you don't realize just how much you've missed someone who can just genuinely convey compassion. Um, I I have been nothing but impressed at Biden's ability to be pitch perfect. Um, I actually have a whole theory about how I feel like Biden is almost undergone this this personal transformation to become what he is during this moment to, to serve the needs of this country. But that's for another show. But I, I will just ask you, Shasi, since you brought that up, the way in which he has done these, uh, the, he's done a number of pressers. He's done a primetime White House address. Um, and he's hitting all these points, as you say. Do you think that that is getting through to the American people? What I'm seeing is I feel like there was a lot of anxiety and a lot of like wanting to just rip this whole thing apart through the process. And that has quieted down. I mean, the, we, we, the Republicans are going to do it because that's what they have. But I think the general like population, the American public are like, OK, this is effective. They said they were going to do it. 
the checks are already showing up. I mean, the checks showed up like in three days, I think. I mean, it's really incredible. And it's like what Will just said about like, watch government work, you know, like, like watch yes. it work and, yes. and watch it be functional and watch it help people. That is why we need government. That's why we elect good people is to do exactly what they're doing. And I think, you know, it's like, we're all a little like nervous about this stuff and it's going to take a minute and they're going to, you know, he's going to keep getting tested. But I think that it's a great first start and a reminder of it's only been 58 days and we're already seeing this. So, yes, I, I think that it is. Biden has absolutely um, underpromised and overdelivered, and it has been uh, a remarkably effective strategy, in my opinion. But, you know, let's just kind of look at the package itself, because I feel like it would be very easy to get lost in the weeds of something that is as big as this package is and lose track of some of the specific ways that it will absolutely transform individual lives. So let's, let's kind of personalize this a little bit with, with the three of us. You know, we all are, you know, I, I can think, uh, you know, of times in my life, certainly, where $1,400 would have been absolutely transformative. Like from, from your standpoint, Will, talk about the ways that you see a $1,400 stimulus, stimulus check really changing people's lives. Well, I'll, I'll start by saying uh, I'm still in that place in my life. I'm not I don't mean to say that it wouldn't make a difference, but it like back in my 20s when I was living absolutely hand to mouth, it really could have changed everything for me. So, yeah. 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 And, and I'll just say personally, I mean, like I'm going to be able to fix my car that I haven't been able to really use during the pandemic. Thank goodness I haven't needed it. Um, but that's that's the kind of stuff we're talking about here. Right. I mean, on a macro level, um, most Americans have less than five thousand dollars in savings. Nearly half of them have less than a thousand dollars. Getting a fourteen hundred dollar immediate payment is the difference for many families between getting putting food on the table and getting going without so your children can eat. Right. I mean, when the C while here, we're lucky enough in Seattle to have the eviction moratorium suspended or extended. Um, many Americans aren't so lucky. They live in, in areas where there's much more regressive local governments. Um, and frankly, the federal government doesn't have the power uh, over or jurisdiction to, to help them in that way. So this can help a lot of families at least make a down payment on that back rent that they've been accruing and find a way to reach a settlement with their landlords so they can stay housed and stay you know safe during the rest of this pandemic, right? I mean, I know we're all excited about the, the sort of light at the end of the tunnel here, but we've got a couple of months at, at minimum left and, and I think it's critical that folks are getting the support they need right now. And Shasti, to your point, the fact that we are showing people that they can believe in us again, right? That there's a way, there's a reason we come together. Big corporations always know the value of government, right? We saw that when the airlines came, we saw that when everybody came for the PPP uh, money and used it to keep themselves afloat, right? Now, average Americans are getting a chance to understand that they too uh, can benefit from this social insurance. So I think that this is a, a critical, a critical amount of money for people to be getting and truly just transformative for so many families in crisis right now. I am here from the United States government and I am here to help. Right. And that was that was yeah. Reagan's expression about, you know, the what, what was it? The the worst words uh, in the English language, something to that effect. Well, yeah, um, I, I think at this point we're, we're having a transformative moment in the in the role of government right now. And it is playing out in the form of this package. And one of the things that I think is so incredibly transformative um, that I don't think we can overstate its importance is the child tax credit, because analysts are saying this could cut child poverty in this country by 50 percent for at least a year. Shasti, talk about this a little bit. How do you see the importance of this? 
Well, I think I think it's huge. I mean, I think that it's 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 there's talk of it becoming permanent. That this could make a sort of generational shift. Um, we know that like you know post World War II programs like Social Security, Medicare, and then even most recently the Affordable Care Act. You know, I mean, it's like this stuff. This is this happened. Once it starts to happen for other people, it's like, oh, this is comfortable. I'm used to this. Like, I actually could, I, this is, I will need this in my life. And I think that it's really sort of an opportunity to an investment in children now, but also in this next generation as they grow, like, that we won't have as many kids that are going to bed at night hungry and who are really struggling and they're watching their parents uh, struggle to make ends meet. What a, what a sh- what a transformative shift that can happen, and it's really exciting. I mean, walk that thought all the way through because children grow up to be adults. I mean, this could transform our society, right, for a generation mm-hmm. or more. Absolutely, um, I, I think that you know we we my you all know my mom works um, as in with, in childcare and, and did throughout my um, entire childhood, and you know watching her struggle and then and then also having to hold. Um, for other parents who are struggling and couldn't make ends meet, the trauma that that was circulated, and you could feel it in the other kids. You know, like little kids can feel when their families are struggling, and so really, um, and then that shifts your whole perspective as you grow up into an adult that is used to Will said earlier scarcity um, and how you operate. So yeah, I, I think it's really incredible. As we think about all this, the, the thought that keeps going through my head is. If we have the power to do this as a nation, as we have demonstrated, why haven't we so far? And so, you know, Shasti, as you were talking earlier about the possibility of it being made permanent, we know that once social like programs like Social Security, Medicare, even the ACA are introduced, it's very hard to kind of put the toothpaste back in the tube. Will, you don't have a crystal ball, but how do you see the chances of the child tax credit becoming permanent? I think there's a significant chance, right? I think that this is something we learned during the Trump administration, that it's a lot harder to take something away than we would have initially thought, right? And I think this goes, this touches sort of all of our approach to politics. I think it, it's critical to the filibuster reform conversation as well, right? I mean, that's what they're really afraid of, is that they don't want to have to take these big votes. Um, and we should not have gotten, um, honestly, through this long of the conversation without mentioning that we passed this without a single Republican vote. And Thank that's you. crucial, right? Um, because as we go to... Uh, you know, voters in 2022, I think this is a possibility where we can say, look, the big lie from Republicans isn't just about the stolen election, it's that life can't get any better for people in this country, right? That's what's at the base of this white supremacy that they're appealing to, that's at the base of pretty much all of their grievance politics, is feeding people a lie that they can't have their lives materially improve, and then saying, at least we're going to be your gladiators in this reality television combat that happens in Congress. Um, But once we've sort of shown them by, again, that direct aid that they're feeling right now, um, that that's just not true, things can get better if we come together and use government as a force for good, Um, I think that's going to be very hard for them to defeat. This is not going to be like every other election we've had previously in the first term of a a president's, you know, time in office. So I think there's... Yeah, yeah, go ahead. I, yeah, just that I, I, I saw Robert Reich say, um, you know, like bipartisanship didn't put food on the table and it exactly. didn't, you know, and it didn't it didn't provide health care. And we need to remember that. I think um, I've already been hearing some of this talk, particularly on the east side of King County, right, of like the, the continued need for bipartisanship. And it's like, look, Republicans are not showing up for this and the American people need us to do what's right, which is to help with covering things like getting the child tax credit, 
passed and you know making sure that we are taking care of people right now during one of the worst experiences that most people will ever go through 100% so. right and you know that brings up the question of you know we've been talking about how we sell this thing we know that the the way to sell it to, to fellow Democrats is is fairly easy. But, you know, like you say, there are people who are benefiting from this who don't support Biden, who don't support Democrats generally. Do we have an opportunity to reach those people? Shasti, what do you think? Absolutely. Because, you know, every every Democratic president in my lifetime has has been like, I serve the American people. You know, that's that's the job. And, and it doesn't matter. I mean, the first thing Biden said when he won was he got out on that stage and he said, I will be a president for all of you. Um, and so that's not how the other side plays. And that is but that is how we play, because that's how it's supposed to be. It's supposed to be about what's best for for all of us because we're better together. So um, it, it matters. And I and I and that we have to be really clear that it is Democrats that are saying that. It is that is who is leading on this charge. Republicans have never led on that. Hundred percent agreed. Uh, Will you know? It seems to me that you know, just kind of piggybacking on what what Shasti's talking about there. We need to drive home that message that the Democrat and you've you've talked about this already. Democrats did this with zero GOP support, and even now, GOP state attorneys general trying to do away with state and local aid. Uh, there are a few questions here. One is, how should we talk about this particular dynamic with the GOP? And also, is there a way that we can make them pay a price in, in 2022 for this? Yeah, I think it's I think it's pretty easy. I think you just have to relentlessly remind people that zero Republicans voted for this, right? It's a single sentence message, and those are always the most effective, and you can repeat them over and over and over again. I mean, as my dad used to say to me so many times until I finally understood it, you know, repetition pierces even the dullest of minds. Turns out mine wasn't too sharp back then. Um, but uh, I find I that hard that to believe. I can't believe that. <laughs> well, I think that there's also something that's important, and this is something we don't do enough as 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 supporters of the presidency, right? You know. Republicans take it because what they're doing is grievance politics. They feel this personal investment. We want to have someone in office who's just going to take care of stuff and not make us think about it, right? But that's not that's not enough in this era where if so many people get their news from their friends over social media. So our ask would be for people to go and to their networks, tell everyone what the impact is it's having this, you know, having on your lives. Share with friends and family, like I was talking about getting my car fixed, how you pay your debts down or get deal with the credit card debt you've accumulated during this uh you know pandemic um i think that that is so critical because not talking about money is you know that's for rich people right like we actually need to know that this makes a real difference in people's lives and then just tag at the end and not a single republican acted lifted a finger to make that happen right because i think that that's important for people to understand and i think if we do that the gop will pay a political price i think it's really hard to take stuff away like we saw with the aca repeal and you know we remember john mccain for his big thumbs down moment right but i think it's it's no surprise that every single democrat held firm and put him in the position where he felt the pressure that that he was the one who was going to make that decision to take away health care for millions of people he was going through his own, you know, personal healthcare crisis. So I think that that is a very strong message. Um, and I think wh while we're still facing down a huge challenge next year, next November, I feel a lot better about us remaining a trifecta if, you know, people understand that Republicans are trying to take money out of your pocket. How wild, I guess, I've forgotten that you, you call it thumbs down, but how wild that now Kristen Cinema is known for her big thumbs down moment for the opposite reason of what John McCain did. And 
I hope that the thumbs down moment for her is remembered, but not with the same type of uh, exactly appreciation. Nope. No permanent friends, no permanent allies, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, I just keep thinking about that moment and what Mark Kelly must have thought of it. I mean, he supported the minimum wage, and he's up for re-election before she is. Uh, anyway, we're going to take a quick break, and then we'll be right back with Shasti's interview with Toshiko Hasegawa and Senator Joe Wynn. Well, next, we are going to talk about the series of killings in Atlanta on Tuesday. Six of the victims are confirmed to be women of Asian descent. Joining Shasti to discuss this are Toshiko Hasegawa. She is candidate for the Port of Seattle position four and currently serves as executive director of Washington State's Commission on Asian Pacific American Affairs and also 34th LD State Senator Joe Wynn. And with that, I will hand things over to Shasti. Thank you so much, Stefan. And thank you, Toshiko and Senator Wynn, for being here. We're so happy that you're here. Unfortunately, on a, for a sad reason, um, which as you know, many folks will know, the uh, two days ago we had this um, mass murder that happened in Atlanta. The targets were primarily Asian American women. Um, and that is on the heels of a, a year that has been um, full of this type of uh, Asian American hate, hate towards uh, Asian Americans and violence. Um, we've seen a, an, an uptake of 150% in increased um, violent attacks against Asian Americans since the beginning of the pandemic. And so I just wanted to kind of have an open conversation with the two of you about why do you, why do you think that is? What do you think is driving this increase in violence and hate? So what we're talking about specifically is a white man who sought out to destroy and fulfill his fantasy of destroying specifically Asian women. And that is on the tales of years of an administration that stoked anti-woman rhetoric, anti-immigrant rhetoric, and then most recently, very specifically, anti-Chinese rhetoric. It's really, of, of, of course, of course, it was politically supported and he, he stoked violence. He encouraged violence and it's a culmination of that. But everybody knows that Trump was just a symptom. He's not the cause. That white supremacy has been alive and well in America, including right here at home. And so I think it's pertinent to point out that what we see as a recent trend in anti-Asian sentiment and hate crimes specifically is one manifestation of a larger trend that we've been seeing for years in Washington state. Over the last five years, there's been a rise in hate crimes against black folks, against Jewish folks, right? And that's why in 2019, Representative Javier Valdez introduced legislation that would establish a Washington state hate crimes work group. Um, it was supported by the governor. That group came together across different walks of life to be able to address what do we do to be able to meet the needs of the public who's impacted. But when it comes to Asian Americans specifically, the intensity of this moment is unbearable. Um, and there are so many levels um, to the pain in this incident because the hate is not just based upon race. There is palpable misogyny and so i think as a society we need to have like a very very crucial conversation about the intersections as well of misogyny and white supremacy and how we're actually 
not only acknowledging vulnerable people, but but empowering them in order to tear down some of these systems of oppression that have long existed and are alive and well today. Yeah, and to piggyback off of that a little bit too, is that the 3.8 or sorry, 3,800 incidents that we've seen are the ones that are reported. Numerous more are unreported. And also there are, you know, microaggressions or even aggressions that may not rise to that level, uh, but still would count as perpetuating this broken system, right? So we know, uh, for instance, that we're not immune. Uh, one of the first things that happened to me when I was in the legislature uh, was that I had my name made fun of on the Senate floor, right? That type of mentality feeds into the system as well. When I was a, a kid, uh, by the way, I was born here and I, I speak English just fine. Um, I was put into ESL <laughs> in kindergarten because they didn't think that I could speak, right? So we're talking a system that has been in place for generations that has minimized our experience. So when you minimize somebody's experience, not only you devalue them as an individual, you don't uh, you don't see them as humans. And that's why you're able to get folks like this white supremacist shooting up places because they didn't see the individuals there as humans. And that's why this behavior happens is because you don't see them as worthy of being considered. Um, so that's probably one of the biggest things too. And, and I will say this is obviously much more complex than it even may seem. Oftentimes knowing that we come from a, a, a system of scarcity, knowing that we're here um, uh, as refugees previously, my parents uh, were very much, you know, told us to not rock the boat, don't speak up uh, because you can be put in danger. So the fact that I was raised with that mentality shows that this is not a new thing, that my, my parents themselves uh, were subject to it. Um, you know, obviously I would do it a little bit different for my kids instead of saying, don't speak up, I would say fight back. But um, that's the, the nature in which we've existed in this society for so long. You know, this senator brings up such an important point, Shasti, because what we see is the tip of the iceberg and so many people are not reporting. And it's uh, just as a little bit of context, I used to work as a, a countywide um, communications and outreach manager for the Office of Law Enforcement Oversight at King County, which is how I met Senator Wynn, because he was a member of the Community Advisory Committee in light of the, the killing of Tommy Lay right there in Joe's home city. And what's at the core of that is like, there's this inherent skepticism and inaccessibility to receive support in, uh, in law enforcement in the eyes of community. And what happened in this tragedy, what happened here is that the law enforcement officer said, they got up there and they said, this kid had a bad day and this is what happened. I'm sorry, but like that does not invoke confidence or legitimacy of law enforcement in the eyes of the community members who are impacted and i will add from a criminological standpoint it's categorically wrong there is actually thought to be uh, in, 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 in a, from a criminological standpoint a sexual motivation oftentimes in murder even if there's no overt sexual component and it's about satisfying a sick fantasy and in this case the perpetrator did exactly what he wanted to do. He did not have a bad day. The only thing that made it a bad day was the fact that he got caught and doing that, for framing it as if he's a sex addict, as if he needs some sort of support, completely detracts, completely detracts from the true sickness in this country, which is hate, it's misogyny and it's racism. And all of that are our culminations 
of pervasive white supremacy. So let's talk about the correlation, not only of how women, people of color are being targeted for hate crimes. Let's talk about the correlation with that, with the organization and activity of white supremacist groups who are very much here and present in Washington state. Yes, well, you know, the uh, King County GOP chair, Joshua Freed, has totally thrown in with all of them and is continuing to back that type of racist rhetoric. But you hit on a really important point with law enforcement. We keep seeing this type of racism that is just like endemic to law enforcement. And so they're so quick to um, try to create reasons for why white men commit these types of murders. Right. What what can we do? What, you know, Joe, it's, um, uh, Toshiko, you mentioned that he, Joe was on this um, commission previously. So Joe, like what, what can we do? How do we hold law enforcement more accountable? Yeah, no, it's actually, it's an interesting topic because again, um, what Toshiko mentioned, this is how we met. So after Tommy Lay was shot uh, at the hands of law enforcement, that's how I got more involved. And what I will say is that doing nothing perpetuates this broken system. We have to be active mm -hmm. in our pursuit to end this injustice. And whether that's with legislation, whether that's community, uh, we have to put ourselves forward in terms of making sure that we address these problems as well. And, and look, there, there really isn't a guidebook for these situations, right? Like I think fundamentally, if we're able to love each other and see each other as humans, that's really what's gonna take. Um, but, but honestly, if we don't have trust with law enforcement and within the community, they won't be able to do their jobs and we won't be safe. So, 100%. yeah, exactly. Right. So, you know, I, I fundamentally think that we, we need leaders who show up and do the work uh, at, at the end of the day. And like, not just for press conferences, uh, not just for photo ops, but like in the community doing the work, uh, solving these problems. And I want to move to into the, the media's um, sort of reporting on particularly the Atlanta shooting, but also in in talking about this sort of epidemic of, of, of racist hatred towards Asian Americans. Um, it took over 24 hours for the media to really report and release the names of of the victims, um, finding out who they who they were, like their stories took a long time. There was, you know, People were challenged by even even pronouncing their names. How should the media be handling this better? Like how, what what is going on there? And is it particular to the Asian American community um, that there is is there distrust between uh, the media and the community? What's going on there? You know, there um, the the Tommy Lake case itself did teach us a lot about the way media relies upon law enforcement in order to accurately report. And so, I do think that there's a lot of responsibility in the court of law enforcement to make sure that timely information is going out with uh, without compromising the dignity of the the victims themselves or the right for the families to hear about it first directly from law enforcement and not through media, right? But um, I also just want to say. Shasti, that like the way the law, the way the criminal legal system is set up is not to protect victims. Um, and so having a classification for a hate crime is really important and having an avenue so that folks can can pursue justice. Look, people are so heartsick about what happened and they're saying condolences. We want to check in and like 
thank you for that human decency, but like there are no condolences to be had here. People want change, people want justice, and we don't have very many avenues for that within our criminal legal system. A hate crime is very specifically defined right here at home. And for bias incidents, you know, saying something off the cuff on the street, there's very little that people can do. So we're talking about very much like, yes, legal repercussions and law enforcement has able to play in that, but this is a much, much larger societal problem. And and I will say this, every single person can and should see themselves in this incident because of the eight victims, two of them were not Asian, and one of them was not a woman. And that is the pervasive nature of the harm of hate and how it catches like wildfire. But don't just care because you could be impacted by it. Care because other people's lives have value, right? Um, so, you know, law enforcement has but a small role to play in that. And I'd like, I would feel so much more supported um, if I were to be a survivor of a, vic a surviving family member of a victim, if, if 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 there was like some meaningful like like integral change and the last thing i'll say is the senator wins point is yes leadership does matter and we need folks to be able to not just show up in community and be able to be there authentically but we need folks across jurisdictions across bodies on all levels of government to speak out against this because because this rhetoric is politically supported and even though the trump administration is gone it is still being stoked. And there are people who are saying, pause, don't speak out. Let's see the way this plays out, right? It's like hate should not be a part of anybody's political platform. And if you have power and you have privilege, then you have better use it to call it out when it rears its ugly head. Yeah, all that. And the one thing that I will call out, because we've, Toshka and I have actually talked about this before in the past, is that the media should stop publishing police reports verbatim don't just send out their press releases. So time and time again, we've seen that they've been at, at least fraught with bias and oftentimes false. So I think that's one of the biggest things is don't just amplify this false narrative that the victim was responsible for their own death or that the victim was responsible for whatever. Right. Um, we need to be thoughtful in terms of how we respond to these things because our words do matter. But I really also want to just like reiterate the importance of like the vulnerability of the victims and how it's like, this was not happenstance. This isn't because they, they worked on a busy street. They were specifically targeted as Asian owned businesses, women operating, they were vulnerable people. And so like, let's take a hard look at our attitudes and our behaviors and our systems that that perpetuate the vulnerability or the subjugation or the commoditization of Asian women. Please, please yes. we have this conversation. I mean, this is, we're talking about something that is not just an ailment here at home. I mean, like the uh, misogyny and racism goes across history and across the globe. This is a very serious issue. And I also want to say that when it comes to murder, mass murder, spree murder, 99.9% of the time, it's committed by who, Shasti? White men. Men. It's committed by men. Yes. Mm -hmm. So like, let's have this conversation about a culture of violence that's tied in. So that's what I'm saying is we need to have a conversation about the link between misogyny and white supremacy because yes. these things interplay together. They support each other. They go in tandem together. They're going to correlate as you're watching the, the rates go up for white yes. supremacy and, and hate crimes. Yes. It can happen. Yep. This, this is domestic terrorism.
Yes. And yet it never gets reported like that. So thank you. Absolutely. Um, Joe, I wanted to go really quickly back to what you were talking about with um, the Tommy Lean murder. Um, how did that play out in particular the media angle and reporting on just how the police were sort of angling the, the case? Yeah, that was one of the most frustrating. And I was actually caught up by it as well. So when it first happened, I saw a headline in the set of times that said man with knife confronts cop and is killed. And I was like, Oh, seems pretty cut and dry. Like somebody was trying to attack the cop and they got shot. And only after I received text messages from his family did I realize it was Tommy. And only about a week later, when people started prying in and saying, Wait, we don't think that there was actually a knife. Oh, and by the way, it was the day before his high school graduation. And candidly, he did not seem like he was a threat. Right? So I fell into that trap and realized how dangerous it is mm -hmm. for media to parrot uh, the narrative of law enforcement without first doing due diligence as well. Um, and the fact that they put out that false narrative that he was carrying a knife, like that's a pretty substantial uh, piece of information that was put out to discredit the victim. So in my mind, you know, we need to figure out how to hold uh, our officials accountable when they put out these false narratives as well, because it's clearly biased. Uh, I ended up doing a public records request and then looking at previous uh, press releases that have gone out, and they had a similar trend. Mm -hmm. If you look at what happened to Pierce County this morning as well, with the reporting in terms of the man who was delivering newspapers and law enforcement mm -hmm. said, oh, he was threatening to kill me. Oh, never mind. He, he wasn't actually doing that, right? We know that these reports are, are made by people and people can be biased. So we have to address that issue as well because that narrative you have to reclaim and the victim can't be a victim twice after they've been uh, unduly harmed by law enforcement as well. We can do a whole other show on that that yeah. <laughs> on that dynamic of, of, especially as people of color, right? Where it's like, we are just existing and that is a threat and is seen as equal to the force that is then enacted against us particularly by law enforcement, but also just people. Um, that's a whole other show. Um, but uh, yes, yeah, so uh, we're, we're kind of running down on time, but I just wanted to um, acknowledge you both were at um, the uh, rally that happened last weekend down in the international district that was calling out, um, really trying to say, we've got to stop this hate. Um, can you talk just a little bit more specifically about what is happening here in Washington state? And, and also how can people, people that are watching, how can they be supportive um, during this time and help to help to put an end to all of this? What's happening here in Washington state is people are being attacked. Uh, that that rally kicked off at Hinghe Park at the CID for a reason. And that's because there was a Japanese language teacher who was attacked in the street by a man wielding a sock with a rock inside of it and they didn't think he would have stopped if it wasn't for a good samaritan intervening and that's just one incident um and so you know when anti-asian when covid 19 first broke out we foresaw this happening because the president of the united states launched with his rhetoric of Chinese virus, Wuhan virus, Kung flu. And so ever since then, community has been saying, be on the lookout for bias, then be on the lookout for hate, and now it's be on the lookout for violence. Um, so we have launched a webpage with resources at kappa.wa.gov, speaking as you know somebody who works for the state. Um, and it has 
not only a resource that's community-led for community members to be able to report hate crimes and bias incidents when they happen, it also encourages them to report to law enforcement if they're comfortable. It also has resources for bystander training for people. And as of today, we have also uploaded, unfortunately but necessarily, um, self-defense courses as well because people need to know how to defend themselves. I don't know if you heard about the story in San Francisco where a, a grandma, she wasn't even just an auntie, she was a grandma. She was punched in the face by a white man walking by and she fought back. And guess who ended up in the stretcher? The assailant, but she's still traumatized. People need to know how to defend themselves. Um, so it's gonna be a matter of, of working closely and relying upon our trusted messengers in community-based organizations who actually know and will be the first point of contact for community members who are hurting and deserve support right now. And hopefully we can uphold laws and look to folks like the Attorney General and local law enforcement jurisdictions to hold the perpetrators uh, accountable to the fullest extent possible of the law. Yeah, and at that rally, I was very heartened to see some people show up in solidarity. That in itself was very powerful. So as we're thinking about what we can do for one another, I think just being a resource, being present, being mindful, um, showing the love to one another, that will be in itself a powerful move. Thank you. Thank you both for being here. Thanks for all of your work on these issues and um, everything that's affecting this region. Um, thank you and good luck. And we're, we have you in our in our minds as we carry forth in this work. So thank, thank you. you so much. Great to see you as well. We will close out this week with some calls to action for people. If you want to get involved, uh, we have some organizations that are going to be available at IndivisiblePodcast.org. Stop AAPI Hate, uh, Asian Americans Advancing Justice Atlanta, the Asian Pacific American Institute for Congressional Studies. And then for further learning, we have a list of Asian uh, anti-Asian violence resources. There is a workshop called Bystander Intervention to Stop Anti-Asian American Harassment and Xenophobia Workshop. And then finally, you can donate to the victims' families through a fund set up by Asian Americans Advancing Justice Atlanta. And again, all of these can be found in the show notes at indivisiblepodcast.org. Once again, thank you to Toshiko uh, Hasegawa and Senator Joe Wynn. For Shasti Conrad and Will Casey, I'm Stephen Cox. Thanks, everybody. We'll see you next week. Bye-bye.